halfway point, folks, and we are in the uh, second half. We're in our third quarter, if you will, of the uh, great book of Philippians. Now, we'll be looking at the first three verses uh, tonight in this chapter, and we've been using uh, a rather homespun outline of the book by J. Vernon McGee, chapter 1, entitled The Philosophy of Christian Living, chapter 2, The Pattern of Christian Living, and chapter 3 is The Prize for Christian Living. Now tonight, as I say, we'll be looking at verses 1, 2, and 3, and we're entitling these three verses, Christian Beware. Christian Beware. Let's have a word of prayer now. Dear, wonderful, heavenly Father, thank you for this blessed book, the whole Bible for sure, but we're in Philippians tonight. Teach us to rejoice. Teach us to beware. Teach us, Lord, wisdom. We pray that you'd prepare our hearts and warm our hearts up so that we can properly come to you for a a season of prayer. Our heavenly Father, glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe that any good Christian is a target for Satan. That's the way she goes. Any good church is on Satan's radar. And he's well aware of it. And I believe that he wants to entrap Christians. And he wants to ensnare churches using one of his devices that we'll look at tonight. Why? Why does he do this? So that he can defeat us. So that we can end up like Samson with his hair cut. Defeated. Forlorn. Discouraged. Weak as can be. Good for nothing except to grind out some grain maybe. No joy there. No rejoicing. Who wants to live a life like that? And yet there are so many Christians that have fallen for his devices. And they become ineffective in the family of God. In fact, in their own families, they're ineffective in being able to uh, impart spiritual truth and a godly heritage to the family. They just can't do it because they've been overcome. They've been ensnared by one of his devices that we'll look at tonight. So we begin chapter 3 in verse 1, and he starts with the words, Finally, my brethren. Now, offhand, you might think, oh, If you were hearing this read and you had no idea there were four chapters and all of a sudden he he said, finally, my brethren, you might think, oh, he's going to be bringing the plane in for a landing. I better fasten my seatbelt and put the seat in its upright position, put the tray away, get all of the stuff stowed properly because we're coming in for a landing. And yet we're not. We're still, you know, halfway through the book of Philippians. Well, is he playing mind games with us? And the answer is no. What Paul means here is that he's getting into his final discourse, his final argument. That's what he means. It's a rather short book, as you know. Book of Philippians, just four short chapters. But boy, is it ever jam-packed with goodies. And so he says, finally, my brethren, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now that's something that we sometimes forget to do. And we get busy with our work and we get overtaken with our problems or we get distracted with the uh, side issues of life and we often forget to rejoice in the Lord. Some Christian might say, well, what have I got to rejoice in? Uh, 
Maybe my work's not going so good. My health not going so good. What have I got to rejoice in? That's why we got the song, Count Your Many Blessings. And it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. It really will. You and I are not only encouraged, we're commanded to rejoice. That's a command. That's something that we can either obey or disobey. Rejoice in the Lord. He says to write the same things to you. Now, realize this, that in the last two chapters, Paul talked of rejoicing five times. Five times. In chapter 118, he said, Christ is preached and I therein do rejoice. Yea, and will rejoice. In chapter 2.16, he says, Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Philippians 2.17, Yea, I joy and rejoice. Philippians 2.18, For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Philippians 2.28, I sent him, that's Paphras, therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice. So joy and rejoicing is a key word in the book of Philippians. And so he starts off the chapter here saying, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He says, To write the same things to you is not grievous. He said, But for you it is safe. You realize that rejoicing is not only a command, but it's also a safeguard for us as well. As we learn to rejoice in the Lord day after day, we become more bulletproof, or perhaps I should say dartproof. The devil has a harder time dealing with us. The devil has a hard time dealing with a rejoicing Christian. I'm telling you, it's hard to keep a rejoicing Christian down. Rejoicing will help uh, keep your heart close to God, number one. Rejoicing will, will help keep you mindful of the things God has done, number two. Rejoicing will help uh, protect you from Satan's temptation. Satan hates rejoicing. He does. And if he, it's almost as if he says, listen, if you're going to rejoice, I'm going to leave the room. And so then we say, well, don't let me stop you. And we start rejoicing. Oh, it's amazing what praising can do. Hallelujah. It really is. There's power in rejoicing. Now that there is a worthy of a sermon and something that we could all get a little bit better at. We usually like to complain and grumble here in Canada. I'm sure around the world people have their ways of grumbling and complaining, but we seem to be good at it here in Canada. We like coffee and hockey and complaining. We love to complain. Uh, but th th that's not right. That's not right for the Christian. That, that should not characterize us. We shouldn't be known as a grumbler, a mumbler, a complainer. That's not right. We should be known as a rejoicer. A pastor that I, I had the privilege of meeting once many years ago, he's since gone home to heaven, he always used to have a, a song in his heart. Every day he determined that he was going to be a rejoicer, you know, and uh, not uh, defeated through grumbling and all the problems he had to deal with. And he had a lot of problems in his ministry he had to deal with. But he determined he was going to uh, begin each day with rejoicing. And each day he would choose uh, a hymn. And he would start to sing it or to hum it or whistle it. And on his way into church every morning, he'd stop off at a local little uh, 
7-Eleven store or some little mom and pop shop and he'd pick up a copy of the daily newspaper and then he'd get back in his car and he'd continue on into church. Well, this one morning he walked in and got his newspaper and he, uh, he put it down and uh, ready to pay for it and the lady behind the counter said, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he said to her, what do you mean what's wrong? She said, Every day for the last 10 years, you come in here and you buy a newspaper and you're always whistling or humming some song. But today you're dead silent. What's wrong? And he didn't realize it, but he allowed the pressures of the ministry to get to him that day. And there was no song on his lips. He wasn't whistling any kind of happy, happy Christian hymn. He realized that. And boy, that was like a sermon that she spoke to his heart. And so he, he thought, man, I don't want to make this same mistake twice. You know, you can go through life. You can go through the day tomorrow, say. You can go through the day glum and gloomy. Or you can go through the day rejoicing with the Lord. And there's power in rejoicing. You say, but pastor, I have problems. You don't know my problems. You don't know the half of my problems. No, you're probably right. I don't. But I know who does. God knows all about it. And I know something else. If you start rejoicing, making it a habit, purpose to rejoice, that's what you have to do. You do it by faith often. You start by faith. And you purpose to rejoice. If you'll do that, it seems to lift the burden. It really seems to work. This is not self-delusion here. This is opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit lifting us, buoying us up. And so rejoice in the Lord. And so he says, it's not grievous for me to tell you these things. He says, but for you, it is safe. And so this is very important, this verse 1. We learn to rejoice in the Lord. But that's not all we need. You can't just take that and uh, go, through, go through life. You need more than just that. That brings us to verse 2. We need wisdom to see and to recognize Satan's devices because they're listed for us here in verse 2. He starts out verse 2 with the word beware. We have in verse 1 the word rejoice and now we have the word re, uh, beware. Beware means to be cautious, to be on one's guard. Don't let your guard down. Be very wary. Be very cautious. Now, I just want you to see that the word beware follows on the heels of rejoice. Rejoice. Yes, rejoice. But at the same time, have your guard up. I've been almost 40 years in the ministry. And you know something that I've learned is that whenever God allows for some big blessings to come, usually there's something coming not long after that's going to try my faith. Sometimes it takes away all of the blessings that I got in the first place. Sometimes it doesn't take away the blessings, but it just adds a great big glob of burden to me. And I've often found this, and I've found it in other preachers' messages too. One pastor preached a message, and I remember his analogy, and he called it blessings and burdens like the two rails of a, a railroad track. And he said that, they ride together on the rails, the blessings and the burdens. And they usually arrive about the same time. 
Sometimes one ahead of the other, one way or the other. But you'll often find this, that along with the blessing comes some burden. And so that doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It doesn't mean God is displeased. It means that's the way it goes. They sort of balance each other. And we'll learn more about it by and by. And we'll learn when we get to heaven why we needed those burdens. Lord, I love the blessings, but why the burdens, Lord? Well, we needed those in order to make us more like Christ and to teach us things. You will learn ten times more from your burdens than you will from your blessings. All you can learn from your blessings is yippee. But from your burdens, you'll be able to learn great, wonderful lessons. God sends them both. He allows them both. Rejoice and beware. You see, one follows on the heels of the other, doesn't it? So, um, I'm reminded of Elijah in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, you can read about it later. But Elijah had this tremendous victory where he had the altar set up and the, the, the prophets of Baal and all of that, you remember? And he had this tremendous victory that day over the prophets of Baal. Tremendous blessing. There were 400 false prophets that lost their heads. And there was a tremendous victory. And the people were saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Tremendous hallelujahs and victories. And then there was uh, three years of uh, no rain up to that point. And then... Uh, Elijah prayed earnestly and it started to rain. Another tremendous hallelujah. I mean, it's so hard to get higher, a higher day than that. But along with the blessing, along with the rejoicing, came the beware and Elijah let his shield down. He didn't keep his shield up. He wasn't bewaring. He wasn't being cautious because he outran Ahab's chariot back to town And he was exhausted. And then he gets word that Jezebel's going to kill him. And his shield was down. And that fiery dart found its way right through to his soul and spirit. And he was so discouraged. He was so despondent. He was so upset. He was so forlorn and despondent. He just turned and he ran. And that's what they say about quitters. Is that they think with their feet. I'm out of here. And unfortunately, the great Elijah, who had just, you know, moments before won some of the greatest victories you can see in the Old Testament. He went from victor to victim, from the top to the bottom. And if we're not careful, that's what will happen to us. We'll have great victory, and then the devil will hit us up because our shield is down. Pow! We'll get hit pretty hard. And we'll forget momentarily that there is a devil. And that's the moment he's waiting for. And he can take us down. That's why we have beware. Rejoice, yes. But beware, beware. Um, The Greek word translated beware is vlepo. And it means to look or, or I look. It means to see. I see. And so it's translated here as beware. In other words, we need to be always watching out. You might say, watching out for what? Well, Paul tells us. It's in verse 2. Look at them. Three things. What's the first thing? What is it? Dogs. What's the second thing? 
evil workers. What's the third thing? The concision. Boy, there's a word we don't use much, is it? Dogs we seem to understand, I think. Evil workers, I think we understand. But when it comes to concision, we say, well, what is that? Is that anything like a decision? You decide something? No, that's a little different. This is a concision. What in the world are these uh, strange groups that Paul mentions? Because he says that we're to beware for these three groups. Well, what are they? These are three of Satan's effective devices that he uses continually to immobilize good Christians and to demoralize good churches. These three devices right here. The first one is dogs. If you know anything about dogs, dogs are greedy. Dogs are always hungry. They're always greedy. They can be full, and if you offer them, they'll eat more. They'll vomit, and they'll go back, and they'll eat more. They'll even eat up their own vomit. Ah, it's disgusting. We've owned dogs all our lives. I don't know why we own dogs. But they're disgusting little creatures, but we love every one of them. Dogs. They're not only greedy, but sometimes they can be very snappy and snarly too. Now the dogs that um, my wife and I would own are these nice, gentle, little homebodies, you know, that'll lick you to death. Those aren't the kind of dogs that they had over in the Holy Land. These dogs would often go wild, and they were scavengers. Um, People did have dogs as domestic pets uh, in the Holy Land in Paul's day. But uh, a lot of the dogs in Israel and in that part of the world wandered around scavenging for food. And what people often would do is they would walk uh, with a long slender stick in order to shoo these dogs away. And uh, that's why Goliath, when he saw um, David, young David, coming at him, and David had his staff and he had his sling, and Goliath, nine and a half feet tall, looks down at little David and, and, and sees the staff in his hand, and he, he cries out, What, am I a dog that you come after me with staves? The idea is with a stick. So as you would walk through the dusty roads of the Holy Land, you'd have the stick there with you, and if a dog comes near, Hey, get away, get away, get away. And you'd whip this thing and snap at the dog and keep the dogs away. That was very common. The dogs, I'm sure, often had their ribs sticking out because they were hungry, but they were snarly and probably diseased as well. I remember when we were in Honduras and El Salvador, we saw dogs like that. I was surprised when we were in Israel because I was looking for the dogs. They're gone. They don't have dogs anymore quite like that. They have cats. Cats are everywhere. And a lot of the restaurant owners will purposely feed these cats a little bit out the back door of their restaurants. Why? So that the cats will chase the mice and the rats. So they're useful. Just like on a farm. A farmer will have a lot of cats because he's got barns and the barns attract mice and rats. And so the farmers will have, will have cats. I remember uh, 25 years ago when we moved into a little bit of a uh, country property, the farmer, Mr. Livingston, close to us, um, he had something like 50 cats. 50 cats. He would buy great big sacks of cat food. And he'd be feeding these cats. He wouldn't feed them too much. He wanted to keep them a little bit hungry, you know. 
But these cats worked for Mr. Livingston. And they would go and they'd find all the mice. You couldn't find any mice or rats on the property because the cats had a job to do. Well, that's the way it is, it seems, over in Israel. I didn't see any dogs. Maybe there are a few. But back here in Paul's day, in Jesus' day and so on, they had the dogs. And the dogs would scavenge around for uh, a food or, or anything they could possibly find. And so here's the first um, group here, and it's, it relates to people. And as we make the application to people, we find that the dogs are greedy, biting, self-serving, worldly people. And Paul first told us to rejoice in the Lord. It's good for us. It's safe for us. And then he says, beware. And the first people group he speaks of are the dogs. The dogs. I like to suggest to you that these dogs may also include the get-rich-quick schemes and the prosperity preachers of which there are many on the market today, including Kenneth Copeland. He's been in the news lately. He's being uh, uh, publicly uh, berated for wanting a third multi-million dollar jet. He's already got two, and he wants another one, uh, some $56 million jet, something like that, or I think he just got it. And he makes no bones about it. He says, I'm a wealthy man. I'm a very wealthy man. Proud of it, too. He preaches a prosperity gospel that teaches that if you're right with God, you'll be wealthy and rich. That is anti-Bible. That is not what the Bible teaches. Yes, God does give blessings, but he nowhere makes promises that if we are right with him, we're all going to be multimillionaires. That's not God's way. This Benny Hinn fella is another one. And they're slick like, like a greased pig. They're slick. You just you, you think you got them and they, they slip out of your hand. Time and again, they've been exposed on TV for their lies and hypocrisy. But they're smooth-talking snake oil salesmen is what they are. And they seem to just slip right out of the grip. But these are, are greedy, get-rich-quick, get-rich-off-your-back kind of thing. They love to talk about the, the, the faith seed promise. You want God to bless you? Send in a seed. Plant a seed. And then God will honor that and then you'll get this big reward of money. Well, the only one who gets the big reward of money is Kenneth Copeland or Benny Hinn. And these guys are multi, multi-millionaires and even though they've been exposed numerous times, there are so many people that still believe their lies. And i like to suggest to you that these are dogs. In Isaiah 56, verse 11, it says, Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. And Paul's warning us about dogs. And they'll come into the church, folks. Greedy dogs who are just very selfish. They're very much taking uh, with greed and self-serving. They're worldly people. And some of them, I think, may even be Christians. And I want also to suggest that dogs not only bark, but they can bite as well. And I'll tell you one that's been biting a lot these days on the internet. His name is Steve Anderson. Now I want you to turn back to the book of Galatians. Just a few pages. Chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I want you to see a verse here that applies directly to what we're talking about. 
Galatians 5 and verse 15. Would you read that out loud together with me now, please? But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. I remember watching a, uh, a video clip of two snakes that got into a fight and grabbed each other and started to devour each other. I forget which one won, it doesn't matter, but they kind of devoured each other. They both end up dying. And here, Paul, in writing to the book of Galatians, which was ensnared with one of these three devices. And so Paul said, if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. You won't have a church left if you bite and devour one another. This is one of the devices of Satan. And dogs have been known to bite and devour. Greedy dogs. Selfish. Applied to people, we're talking about greedy, biting, self-serving, worldly people. And there's a lot of them out there. Well, the second people group he speaks of after dogs is evil workers. And essentially, these are people that work evil. Evil is the opposite of good. Good is to build up. Evil is to tear down. And there are many people, I think, that specialize in tearing down. They just seem very good at it. As soon as you get them talking about anything negative, all of a sudden, it just comes, it pours out of them. They just tear things down. Some people are very good at tearing you down. You talk to them, and within a few minutes, they can just start picking you apart and tearing you down. Well, this falls into the category of evil people, evil workers, and we need to beware of evil workers. You know, if you're in the company of an evil worker, you need to do two things. Now, this is a, an evil worker maybe at the church. If it's an evil worker uh, in your place of employment, handle it a little differently. But if you find an evil worker in the house of the Lord, two things you need to do. Number one is you need to get away from that evil worker. Number two is you need to tell the pastor about that evil worker. That's not tattling. That's not snitching on someone. That evil worker will go on and hurt someone else and then go on and hurt someone else and then go on and hurt someone else. And I remember some years ago we had a lady we had to put out of the church because she, she was an evil worker and she just couldn't stop it. And we spoke to her numerous times. She managed to hurt just about everyone in the church. No one would go near her. And finally, after we had revival services and the evangelist in and everyone was just blessed of God and she was so negative and bitter uh, almost like acidic that was God telling me that's the final straw and we put her out of the church sometimes you have to cut off a finger to spare the rest of that body and so that's what we had to do in that case but evil workers are mainly people who attend churches in order to work evil or cause trouble but it's also, I believe, applicable to um, those who plot and plan evil against the gospel itself. And with many of those people in Canada, I believe certain politicians and certain groups that legalize wickedness, and then when you preach against it, you get arrested or you get taken to court, all that falls under the heading of evil workers. And so... Paul is telling us to rejoice, but he's telling us, beware, keep your shield up, beware. It's not a perfect world yet. 
and creeping into churches are dogs. Boy, I remember once, I think it was in Honduras, wasn't it? I was preaching. And of course, the doors are wide open, the windows are wide open because of the heat. And I was preaching away, and uh, in walks a dog during my message. In walks a dog. And uh, I was expecting someone to get up right away and escort this little four-footed friend out. No, they didn't. The dog kept walking under the pews and sniffing around and, and so on. And after two or three minutes, maybe five minutes of this, finally one man got up, took his hat, and he just went over and started whacking the dog. Get out, get out, get out. And started whacking the dog out like that. What a wonderful sermon illustration. Hey, Ivan, write that one down for a future preaching. That uh, true story, it actually happened. The guy's whacking, kicking the dog out of church. And that's what you need to do with dogs. You need to do that with evil workers. And then the third group is the concision. Now that almost sounds like a creepy word, doesn't it? Dogs are bad enough and evil workers are even worse. And then he gets to concision. The word concision literally speaks of cutters of the flesh. The cutters of the flesh. And they're still around today. I'd like to suggest to you that in uh, today's terms, it's the ultra-religious far-right-wing legalists. Now in Paul's day, the Pharisees were some of the um, most ultra-religious right-wing legalists that there were. And they preached circumcision to the point you can't be saved without it. You can't be right with God without circumcision. And they just totally, totally pervert the whole idea of what circumcision was. Um, Pharisees, legalistic Christians caused divisions within churches back then. And it still happens today. Now I want you to note something very important. When we talk about legalism... We're not talking about godly standards. We're not talking about that at all. Pastor says, you ought to, um, you ought to live right for God. Hey, being a legalist. You ought to come to church services. You ought to be here and in your place on time. Ah, another legalist. You ought to be baptized and become a member after you're saved. Oh, a big legalist. You ought to dress conservative for the Lord and honor Him. Oh, now I, I think you're a legalist. You ought to stay away from smoking and legalize marijuana, legalize liquor. You ought to stay away from that. Oh, you're a legalist. No, that has nothing to do with legalism. Legalism has everything to do with a means of salvation. That's what legalism was. That's what the Bible indicates. Legalism is not standard. Never make a mistake on this. There are churches that are just as sloppy and slovenly and dirty and proud of it. And they would look upon us and call us legalists. Ah, look at those trim gym haircuts of yours. Ah, a bunch of legalists. Look at you wearing a necktie. Ah, legalists. No, not at all. Not at all. There's nothing wrong in this culture in dressing properly. Nothing wrong with being clean and circumspect. We're not talking concision now. We're talking circumspect. means to walk very carefully is what I mean. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, we need more of that. That's not legalism. Okay? That's not legalism at all. God has a Bible full of good standards. 
And we need to hold the truth in love for sure. We're not going to condemn people. Oh, you don't cut your hair like mine. Oh, you don't dress like me. Oh, you're going to hell. No, 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 no. Not, not right at all. Let's uh, maintain our, our godly standards before the Lord. If someone doesn't want to dress proper, well, that's up to them. But we're not going to condemn them for it. All right, so anyhow, there's just a lot of mistake being made today with this idea of legalism. So never confuse the two. Legalism has everything to do with a means of salvation. It has nothing to do with godly standards. Now the concision pride themselves in their feelings of superiority and they invite others to become part of their elite group and to join them. Now it's a very effective way to destroy a good church. And uh, churches get divided over things like this. Now, these three types are all over the internet. They're all over Christian radio. And Christians need to beware. That is the watchword for today. Beware, lest they come under their deceptive powers. Many of these people have very persuasive, wonderful voices on the, uh, the radio, the Christian radio. I, I've listened to some of them. I envy some of the voice boxes that some of these guys have. I sometimes sit down and watch the video and listen to myself and I think, oh, Lord, why? Couldn't we do something about that voice? It doesn't, it's so whiny. Just, it's shallow. doesn't sound like, like the guy I just heard on Christian radio. Man, he's got a deep, booming voice. Wow, it moves me out of my seat. And then I have to remind myself that the power is of God, not of man. A lot of people trust in their golden pipes and not in the Holy Spirit. Golden pipes do not a Christian make. You know, we cannot, we can, we cannot be uh, deep Christians because, because we, we can warble in our voice or something. It has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our power, folks. And so I have to remind myself of that. I tell you, though, I still wish I had a better sounding voice. I'm not too happy with the sound of my voice. Not too happy with the fact I'm losing my hair either. A few things that I'm not too happy about, but it's the way it is. And we'll just try and trust the Lord anyhow. But I'm saying this. Christians need to beware because there's a lot of deceptive things going on. The radio and the internet and the YouTubes and things like that. And if you expose yourself too much to these things, you're going to start thinking like these false teachers think. And some of them, I'm not even sure, are saved. The way they behave themselves sometimes. YouTube and Christian radio are vehicles for the gospel. That's true. I'll be the first to admit that. But they're even more a vehicle to spread a false gospel. And there are Christians that are leaving churches. They're being confused and they're leaving good churches because of the, the guy on the radio... The guy on the radio said this. Pastor, what's your opinion on this? Because the guy on the radio and Christians today are saying, who's your favorite radio preacher? Oh, it's so-and-so. Oh, who's yours? Oh, it's so-and-so. Oh, and they think that's something to be proud of. You know, that would be like someone coming up to me and saying, who's your favorite wife? What a dumb question. I'll answer it with one finger. <laughs> there she is. You know, you go to the children. Who's your favorite father? 
Huh? Well, my own, of course. There's dad over there. He's my best dad in the world. It's the dad God gave me. Why do we want to do that with radio preachers? Well, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite? I think the church at Corinth had that problem. Some said, I am of Peter. Some said, I am of Paul. No, Paul's better than Peter. No, he's not. Peter's better than Paul. And they had those problems there. Some even said Apollos has got them both beat. From what I understand, Apollos was, had the golden pipes. He, he was the, the golden-tongued orator. Anyhow, we're told here to beware. Now, we've got to move on here. Um, after telling us to rejoice and telling us to beware, like to keep your shield up, now we get into verse 3. So, Paul has just finished exposing the devices of Satan in verse 2, and now in verse 3 he's going to present God's truth. The lies of Satan are seen there in the dogs and evil workers and concision. But now I want you to see God's truth. Paul comes right out and says, For we, and he's referring to the saved people, he includes himself in there. He's talking about born again, men and women, who've repented of their sin and come to Jesus and asked Jesus to forgive their sin and come in their heart, be their Savior. They've been born again. Have you been born again? Paul's talking about we are the circumcision. Now understand something. Originally, circumcision was a covenant sign between God and the Israeli people and the Jews. This was the purpose, the original intent of circumcision. And it had to do with the, the baby boys, not with the baby girls. I think we are all past that point, are we? We understand that. But it was a covenant sign between Israel and God. But... It went beyond that. It went more than that. Because Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he said, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. So Moses even was taking it beyond the physical to the spiritual. And so it definitely has its application in the spiritual. Now with your finger there in Philippians chapter 2, I'd like you to turn back to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 10, follow along as I read. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision, I was talking about Abraham here and, and salvation. Was it when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? And he answers his question, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. That was Abraham's faith and salvation. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. And so Paul here was saying that salvation... Salvation came before circumcision. This was a covenant sign that God gave after 
Abraham got saved. And if you look, please, at the book of Colossians, it's after Philippians, you get Colossians, and go to chapter 2. We're talking spiritual circumcision. In chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul writes, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so you see here that, if you go back please to Philippians chapter 3, what Paul is saying is that we, the saved people, are the circumcision. There's a spiritual circumcision. Saved people are spiritually circumcised. The idea is cut off from the world and all of its hell-deserving ways. We who are born again, we are the ones who are spiritually circumcised. Now, he had just finished talking about dogs and evil workers and the concision. And the concision, the flesh cutters, were basically... Uh, concentrating just on the flesh. That's what they were concentrating on. And they came, they were like Judaizers, and they came after the Gentiles, because essentially the Gentiles weren't circumcised. And so they came to them and said, unless you be circumcised, you can't be saved. You've got to be saved, if you want, and if you want to be right with God, you've got to be circumcised. And these were the legalists. Again, in the idea of getting right with God for heaven, salvation. And Paul is saying, no, 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 he said. We who are saved, we are the circumcision. He says here in verse 3. Um, we are the circumcision. And then he goes on to give the evidences of this spiritual circumcision. He's giving the proof, the proof of, of salvation, spiritual uh, circumcision. Number one, he says that we worship God in spirit. Number two, he says, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. In verse three, he says, number three, we have no confidence in the flesh. Now that's very important. Look at it again. We worship God in spirit. Now he just warned us about dogs in verse two. Do you know that dogs can't worship? We have a dog named Charlie. You all have seen pictures of Charlie. He's our little mutt, our mutski. He's about that big, Charlie. And a couple things about Charlie. Charlie never prays before he eats. He doesn't know how. It makes no sense to him. He doesn't know God. He doesn't even know that there is a God. He doesn't pray and give thanks before he eats. He just eats. And he likes to eat. Because he's a dog. That's his nature. But something else about Charlie is he cannot worship God. Charlie can never, ever worship God. How about that? Ivan, can your dog Soda worship? Have you ever accidentally overheard Soda worshiping God? No, you never will. Neither will Charlie. Dogs can't do it. Isn't that something? Only born again children of God can worship. Now there's an evidence right there. We are the circumcision. We, we are the ones that are saved because we can worship God. Unsaved people don't worship God. They're greedy and self-serving and worldly and sometimes snarly and bitey. Sometimes they just make a lot of barking. We got some neighbor dogs that love to bark. But we 
who are saved, we can worship God in spirit. And dogs can't do that. Only Christians can. The next thing he said, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. Did you know that evil workers, the second item on the list in verse 2, after evil workers, they're not able to rejoice in Christ Jesus because all they're concerned about is evil. They tear things down, tear things apart, pick people to pieces. They can't worship the Lord. They're not able to. They can't do it. Only saved people, only Christians can worship. Uh, I'm sorry, I moved on a second to, to rejoice in Christ Jesus. I'm sorry if I caused you confusion. Worship was the first item. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. The, the evil ones can't rejoice. They can grumble and they can complain, but they can't rejoice, can they? It's just not in them. Not in them. And the third thing is have no confidence in the flesh. And the concision was all about the flesh. That was, that was them. We got no confidence in the flesh. Now we might carry that into a more modern um, context and say, well, this man here is worth a million dollars. And our answer is, well, is he saved or is he lost? Who cares about the million? How is he with God? You see, we got no confidence in that flesh, do we? Why, this man here is a very prominent politician and he's very, very uh, popular and he's loved by tens of thousands. And we say, well, put all that aside. Is he born again or is he on his way to hell? We got no confidence in the flesh. It matters not if he's wealthy. It matters not if he's popular. It matters not if he's a, a bodybuilder and in the pink. It matters not. What matters is his relationship with God. And we who are saved, we realize that. And when you die, you leave it all behind. And life is far more important than money or power or fame. Life is far, far more important. And Jesus said, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so Jesus taught us this one, to have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. And by the way, folks, remember, when it comes to prayer, our confidence is in God and the power of God, not in the flesh. And you may be facing all of the wrong odds and everyone in the world may tell you, you're going to lose, you're going to lose, you're going to lose. God can make you win. There's no way you're going to get out of Egypt and God opens the Red Sea. There's no way you're going to survive in the wilderness and God provides manna for 40 years and water from the rock. There's no way you're going to survive the lion's den. And yet we slept peacefully and here we are. There's no way you will exist in the fiery furnace. And yet we walk around and we come forth without even the smell of smoke on us. Our confidence is not in the flesh. It's in God. Very, very, very powerful truth. We have no confidence in the flesh. We worship God in the spirit and dogs can't do that. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and evil workers can't do that. And we got no confidence in the flesh. And the concision, the legalists, they can't stop. That's all they've got is confidence in the flesh. They have nothing else. And so folks, we got to wrap it up. We're told to rejoice, but we're also admonished to beware. 
Beware of dogs who can make us angry. Or in other words, provoked. Beware of evil workers who can make us afraid. Or in other words, panic stricken. Beware of the concision who can make us aloof or autocratic or in other words, proud. And these are three of Satan's devices that he uses to tear Christians down right, left, and center over the last 2,000 years. And it's rampant today. The local church is the body of Christ. And we are members in particular. Let's rejoice and keep our guard up so as to protect the unity of our faith and to serve our glorious head, the Lord Jesus. Amen.